This is episode 29 with Dr. Brian Goldman, author of the book, The Power of Kindness, Why Empathy is Essential in Everyday Life. And today we're talking about how you can be more empathic and kind. Mm. And you are will be kinder to somebody the instant you recognize that that person could be me and I could be them. Hey moms, are you tired of being tired? Or maybe yelling at your kids? Or maybe you need to know how to get your strength back postpartum? Or learn to manage your stress trying to do it all? Or just to become a more confident mom? If so, then welcome to Citrus Love, keeping motherhood inspired. I'm Christiane Bégin, a mother of two, sharing inspiring conversations with wonderful people on how we can be mentally and physically stronger moms, and also including freshly squeezed ideas, a little bit of fun, so you can learn how to find balance, and also how to raise strong, caring, confident kids in today's world. So if you're ready, let's get started. Welcome to another episode. So happy you're listening again this week. So if you find that these episodes are interesting, please share it with friends, with other mothers. And I do love seeing who's listening and which episode you're listening to. So if you're on Instagram or Facebook, take a screenshot of it um, when you're listening and tag Citrus Love Podcast. So what are we talking about today? We're going to be focusing on empathy and kindness. This guest, I had him a couple weeks ago when everyone was still social or physically distancing. One of the main things that we hear and say as a parent is, I just want my kids to be kind. But what I've been learning through this conversation is if you want to be kind, you have to model kindness. It's easy to say just be kind, but when you show kindness, when you're empathic, then your kids model the same behavior. And if you don't have kids yet, well, this is still important for you. And a little side note for all the mothers listening that are working in a healthcare profession. This doctor, he is an ER physician. So in the beginning and towards the end of this episode, he talks specifically about kindness and empathy related to healthcare and working in the healthcare profession. So that's a side note for you. So who is Dr. Brian Brian Goldman. So in addition to being author of the book, The Power of Kindness, Why Empathy is Essential in Everyday Life, he's a father of two, a husband, and has been working for 35 years as an ER physician at the Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, Canada. So to sum it up quickly, he is a Canadian emergency physician, author, public speaker, radio personality, and known as a medical watchdog. I'll explain a little bit about that. So he's the host of this two CBC's show, one of CBC's award-winning show, White Coat, Black Art, and then a second one, The Dose, where he takes listeners behind the scenes of hospitals and doctor's office. His TED Talk, Doctors Make Mistakes, Can We Talk About That?, has been watched by close to a million viewers, has been featured in the Huffington Post and NPR's 
TED Radio Hour. He is advocating about how to be kind as a health professional. And he is focusing a lot on that with his work. He's published other books as well. And he's worked as a health reporter for the National and CBC Television. So he has a lifelong campaign to confront medical errors and create a culture of safety for patients. But the reason why I wanted him on the podcast today is to talk about the power of kindness in the everyday. And he started on this journey because something happened that made him doubt if he had lost his kindness. And we're all human beings. We're not kind all the time, obviously. But we're going to talk specifically about how and why we are or aren't kind and empathic and talk also about specific individuals. He's traveled to a couple countries around the world to find individuals that are extraordinarily kind or empathic, the power of kindness. So we're going to talk about different aspects of kindness. He also studied and met with neurologists and studied the brain to see the effect of kindness and empathy on the brain. So we're going to talk about a lot of different aspects. And it's going to be very interesting because it's a different conversation about kindness, why you are choosing certain situation to be kind and unkind or empathic or not, then you become much more aware of it. So with that being said, if you love this episode, please leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It helps ranking the podcast and getting people to see it and listen to it. So let's listen in on our conversation. So welcome, Brian, and thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Before we get going and talking about kindness and empathy, I know you mentioned that you were one of the doctors working right now on the front lines because you're an ER physician. Um, how has this been going for you? How have you been feeling and working through all of this? Well, Christian, it's a, it's a pleasure to speak to you. And, uh, you know, to talk about kindness uh, in the time of, of COVID-19 and in general, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm doing fine. We, uh, we were well prepared. Unlike other countries like Italy and Spain, I think we had a lot of time to prepare to get our pandemic, to, to dust off our pandemic planning and to actually put it into, F, into, into, into action you know, first of all, we have more than enough personal protective equipment at the hospital where I work. Mm, that's good. So masks, yes, it's very good to know. Masks <laughs> and uh, especially N95 masks and gowns and face shields. And, you know, we're, you know, there are, I think there's been some limitation of, of the, the masks that we have available, like as an emergency physician, when I enter the hospital, of course, as usual, I have to say, uh, you know, whether I have a fever or a cough, respiratory symptoms and, and, and self-isolated I did. Mm -hmm. And they give me three masks. And the three surgical masks that I receive, they have to last for the eight hours shift that I do in the emergency department. So far, that's been okay. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we expected, you know, when they started canceling elective surgery, we expected, you know, there was a dramatic decrease in the number of patients and that's continued. We're seeing far fewer patients and many of us are asking, where have the heart attacks? Where have the people with the heart attacks and the strokes and appendicitis, where have they gone? Because they sure aren't going to the emergency department. So, you know, we have fewer patients. 
we have begun to see more patients with COVID-19 and they have the typical you know, respiratory symptoms. Some of them are very ill and some of them have been admitted to the, to the intensive care unit. But overall, the crisis, the surge, as they've been talking about, has been manageable. Good. So I'm okay. It's, it's, a, it's, it's very hot under all the protective gear. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's a lot of apprehension and, you know, because this is a respiratory illness that, that not only do our patients have, but, but healthcare providers can get it too. And so a lot of people have been worried, but so far, you know, we've had more worry than actual reasons to be worried. And I think it's partly because we were well prepared. That's good because for us at home, we just see what's portrayed in the media. So sometimes what's on the news isn't really what's true and happening behind the scenes. So it's good to know that it's pretty well managed. So with that, of course, I want to thank you and everyone that you work with and everyone that's keeping us safe. It's getting things back, back to normal to a certain degree. So today we're talking about, I think, a very appropriate topic for us all during this time about kindness and empathy. And specifically, I'd like to talk about empathy, uh, but also as a physician and as a parent. And I do have listeners that are mothers, medical doctors, family doctors. Today we're talking about what you've learned specifically about kindness and empathy during the two years. I think it was two years, right? You've researched uh, your book. That's right. It mm-hmm. was two years, and and it, it took me on a journey to uh, New York City. I went to Quebec. I went to Laval University. Yes. I, I went. I went to Japan, uh, Brazil. Mm-hmm. I went all over the world searching yeah. for some of the kindest people on the planet, so they could teach me things. Mm-hmm. And so, d- did you take like two years sabbatical off work to do this? Uh, I, I tend to be something of a workaholic, so I somehow <laughs> managed to squeeze in all of that travel uh, in between shifts and in between work at the CBC. Um, oh. Now, it, it helped that that the the show, my show, White Coat Black Art on CBC Radio One, was only on at that time in the fall. So it gave me a lot of time between January and about the middle of August to do a lot of research. Plus, I had a couple of great researchers. Karen Chickaluck was a producer who I work with who, who helped me find some of the kindest people on the planet. And then Aaron James Abra, who was, was my key researcher, who, who, who put me in touch with the, with the best neuros, neuropsychologists and neuroscientists around the world. And I want to say something, too, about that. Aaron was not only my main researcher, but she was my key editor, came back. Now, the thing about about Erin is that she was eight months pregnant at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she figured she had just enough time to help me with that editing project before she gave birth to her little boy. The entire time that she was doing research for me and she was reading my books, she was my muse, that she had all of that oxytocin, all of that maternal kindness building up inside her. <laughs> and and so she was very kind to me when she could have been very critical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With all those hormones. Yeah, I've been through Yes, that. that's right. You're a father of two, an ER physician. You've been doing that for 35 years now. And for everyone listening, you're out of Toronto. As parents and mo- mothers listening today, we all want to raise kind, empathic kids. But to teach it, you have to model it. So you, as 
adults and parents, we have to learn about it ourselves. I was actually really curious about your biggest takeaways after going on this journey about kindness in different countries. Is there a commonality that you've noticed? Well, you know, I would say that the commonality is that we are all kind by nature, unless, you know, that person is uh, a psychopath or a narcissist or a Machiavellian, or if they have, if they are a deeply disturbed person. And it doesn't take much to recognize that. You know, we have hardwiring in our brains. And, you know, people ask me, can you teach kindness? Do you need to teach kindness? Mm -hmm. um, and, and some people will argue differently. I don't believe you need to. I believe that it's there. And it's like a muscle that needs to be exercised. And the, the fastest way to be kinder is to simply have someone notice when you are being kind to have you realize that you have been kind and to, and to be mindful and to ask yourself, how did I feel when I was kind? And compare that to how we feel when we're mean, when we're not kind. You know, you're, when you're kind, your heart rate goes down, your sense of well-being goes up. When you are mean, and, and maybe it was, it was a quick release of some tension that you had, your heart rate goes up and your blood pressure goes up and it hurts you as much as it hurts the person that you've been unkind to. It's really as simple as that. We all have it within us to be kind and empathic, but things get in the way. And each of us on a, is on a personal journey to be the best person we can be. And stuff gets in the way along the way, along, along the journey of our lives. And really, if you can learn what it is that, that is the, your particular challenge, what gets in the way of you being the kindest person you can as a habitual kind of factor in your life, if you can recognize that and do things to neutralize it, then your natural kind self will emerge. You can't help it. it it's there because you like it, because you like yourself when you're, you're that way. In, in the same way that when we have relationships, you know, often people have serial relationships where where we go through a series of people and we seem to be repeating the same the same conflicts mm -hmm. and in fact you might even say to yourself oh here i go again i did yeah. it again yeah you know there's a point at which if you recognize it you can stop it but you have to be mindful instead of just automatically kind of letting your brain pathways automatically lead you down that path you've got to be mindful I'm going to talk about being mindful many times because I think it's so important, breathing. But, but it, it didn't matter from one country to the next, from one culture to the next. You know, there are some people who are kinder by nature or by culture than others. I think Irish people are kind. I think Brazilians are very kind. But really, they're just degrees of difference. We're all qualitatively kind by nature. We may have a reason why we're momentarily unkind. You know, for some of us, it may be a challenge. It may be that, that we've had to deal with a physical problem. In others, it's a mental health challenge. Or maybe it was abuse. Maybe it was chronic stress in our lives, particularly in our upbringing, you know, when we were being, when our parents were raising us, you know, and that might be economic stress or it might be physical mm -hmm. or security stress related to, to not being sure we'd have a roof over our heads. Many of us have those challenges. And the mm -hmm. more that, that we are under stress, the less kind we are in the moment. It's funny you say that because your emergency physicians, it seemed to me that this would be stressful every day being yes. at work. The theme in your book was how you started on this journey because you were starting to doubt if you were kind. 
And mm-hmm. so I'm curious to know, when did you suddenly become so focused on figuring this out for yourself? Like, was something that, that happened to you and you realized, oh my gosh, I'm, I don't think I'm kind? Oh, it was, it was, it was worse than that, Christian. I, I was actually accused of unkindness by a family. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I was working in the emergency department. It was a Saturday. And um, uh, a family brought their loved one, the, the matriarch of the family. Uh, she had a, advanced multiple sclerosis. And she uh, was unable to speak for herself. And her family had looked after her. And, and they, they were tired. And they knew that she was near the end of her life. Mm-hmm. And they brought her to the hospital to be admitted because they didn't know what more they could do. And, uh, and, you know, many families did that. Uh, I think that emergency physicians sometimes are very kind with those requests and sometimes they feel overburdened. You know, they feel mm-hmm. as if somebody, you know, a family is trying to take advantage of, of a particular emergency physician. And, and these are the kinds of, uh, you know, bad thoughts that get into our, our minds. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was not, you know, I've never by nature been an emergency physician who gets into conflict with patients. I don't. Mm-hmm. I try to avoid conflicts. And one of the ways that I avoid conflicts is to give patients what they want uh, as long as it doesn't harm them. And, and, and so I, I, I did what they asked. I made a referral to the internal medicine team to see their mom and admit her to hospital. But it took many hours for them to see her because she wasn't sick. She wasn't the sickest patient they had. Mm-hmm. You know, they have this thing called triage and they have yeah. to, they comp- you know, every time a sicker patient came in, this patient got pushed further and further down. And they would ask me every time I walked by the cubicle, a member of the family would ask, when is my mother getting a bed when she's admitted? When is she going to be admitted? I don't know. Can you estimate mm-hmm. when she'll be admitted when she sees the internal medicine team? When will she see the internal medicine team? And this went on and on and on. And at one point, the daughter asked me if I had actually made the referral. She expressed some doubt Mm -hmm. and I snapped at her. I did something very uncharacteristic. It was a very defensive reaction on my part. I said, I did what you asked Mm -hmm. and I walked away. Mm -hmm. And, And the woman got admitted to hospital eventually. She died a few weeks later. And a few months after that, I received a beautifully handwritten letter from the husband of the, of the patient inviting me to a meeting with the family. And so that I could, I could learn about this woman, this mother, this, this partner worker and how hard it had been for the family to look after her as her multiple sclerosis got worse, got more advanced. And, and I remember one phrase in the letter, like it was yesterday, they invited me to the the meeting to see if, if there was any, residual kindness uh, lurking under all that brusqueness that I showed. Mm. And it stung. You know, if a, if a family accuses a doctor of being incompetent, they may be right. They may be wrong. You know, it, that's for the courts. That's for the college to decide. That's for experts to decide. And there's always, almost always room for disagreement, you know, unless, uh, you know, unless it's egregious. Mm-hmm. that's incompetence. But when they accuse you of unkindness, they got you. You know, it was, I don't know, I, it, it may be that I was preoccupied. You know, I can tell you, I didn't know what I was feeling at the time because I was wound up too tight. But somehow that message got through to me. And, and I can tell you, I met with the family. They told me the things they wanted to tell me. And I listened to them. They cried and I cried. And, and you know, I have to tell you something, Christian. This is one of the first times I've been able to, to say this 
in a in an interview a few weeks ago i gave you know i give i give presentations on kindness all the time you know since mm-hmm. i've written the book and um i gave one at a synagogue in toronto a, a progressive liberal synagogue in toronto and the, this older man came up to me and and then his son came i could see it was his son he said do you know who we are and it was them it was the family and and we're talking we're talking 25 years it's been 25 years since since that encounter it's been 25 years since she passed away and and it took me a couple of seconds i said oh my god it's them and you know they didn't know what they were about to see because i gave my standard talk you know i with some variations on kindness Mm-hmm. And they, you know, and I said to them, you have no idea what you're about to see. Mm-hmm. And right off the bat, you know, the first slide is the story, is their story. That's, wow. the, that's the story that their jaws were open. It was like, oh my God, you know, and the, the son said to me, you know, I remember you said to us that I'll never forget what you told me. And, and, and I don't even remember saying that to them, but evidently I didn't forget because that's what started me on the book. Wow. Oh my gosh. What was their feeling about about you doing this book um inspired by the the letter they had sent you? They were amazed and they realized that I did get it, that I got wow. it that day. And and the husband was very pleased because that's all he wanted was to leave an impression on me. <laughs> that's all he wanted. He wanted me to get it and I did. And, and, you know, since that time, we've exchanged, we've had conversations, I had breakfast with him. We, you know, we wanted to get together, you know, with our, with our partners. And, and that's going to have to wait until this social, you know, this mm-hmm. not social, this physical distancing is over because socially we're not just, we're mm-hmm. very close. I was not expecting a story like that, but wow, that's um, amazing. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so in the book, you talked about that often we confuse two terms, and I want to make sure that we're all on the same page, um, everyone that's listening. The difference between empathy and sympathy. Yes, uh, and you're right. And, and you know, I, I know that words matter, and the etymology of, of sympathy is, should mean that you feel the same thing that the other person feels. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it comes from it comes from that root that simp. But you know, modern language usage is is what I'm referring to, and and the word sympathy has devolved into a superficial gesture of concern for somebody else, and it it often comes from the position from the place of not knowing how to respond when somebody has a tragedy, when somebody exactly. loses a life. You know, uh, right now we're thinking about, about all those people who were murdered in Nova Scotia. And, mm-hmm. and, and what do you say at a time like that? And, and if you even, even the language that I'm using speaks to the self-preoccupation that we have when we approach that situation, I never know what to say at a time like that. I'm afraid that I'm going to put my foot in my mouth. That's the English expression. I'm afraid that I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm afraid that the person is going to yell and scream at me and say, you didn't visit, you know, for 10 years and now you, you want to say you're concerned, mm-hmm. um, you know, or that they'll embarrass me or that I'll embarrass myself and I'll have to leave and that we're going to make a scene, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to make a scene and nobody likes a scene. It's messy, right? As some, some cultures hate, hate scenes and others, you know, it's okay. It's part of living. Mm-hmm. That's sympathy. Empathy has three, it has, you know, some neuropsychologists say it has five components, but for our purposes, let's say it has three components. There's the cognitive component. Cognitive mm-hmm. empathy is the ability to imagine or the capacity to imagine what it's like to be somebody else. 
to walk in their shoes, mm -hmm. to see things from their perspective, and to have that perspective inform their actions, not, not govern their actions, but inform their actions. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's cognitive empathy. And that's really what I'm talking about in healthcare, for instance. So that's one component. The second component is emotional or affective empathy, and that means feeling what the other person feels. And that will come and go depending on how closely you identify with somebody else or their situation. You know, for instance, a, a paramedic once told me a story that he was called to the scene of a random act of violence and saw a young woman dead. That's who he attended. She was dead. She no longer needed his services. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they should call the coroner. For a moment, he looked at her and thought it was his fiance. For a moment, it wasn't. But he was traumatized by that. And, and that is what you see there in that example is a crystallization of the, the good and the bad side of emotional empathy. You can get so involved that you no longer, you, you, you can no longer tell the difference between you and the other person that you're empathizing with. You think you're the same people. Mm. You are the same people. And we don't want health professionals, for instance, to emotionally empathize with their patients because their ability to be objective will be compromised. Mm -hmm. Something, and I teach health professionals, sometimes you won't know until it hits you that you've become emotionally involved. Mm. That, that this patient you're looking after reminds you too much of your father who died last year of cancer. And so you can no longer be objective. You can't provide objective advice because you, you're mired in your own feelings of tear for your own father or your partner, your mother, a daughter, a son. We need to be aware when we're being overcome by emotional empathy. This is what mothers feel for their children. Mm. Uh, you know, when your child um, is crying, that cry of despair, you know, your toddler, you hear the bounce, bounce, bounce as they fall down the stairs. And then the silence that lasts forever until they start to scream and you realize they're alive and they're screaming. So they must be okay. But then you go and see them and, and they need stitches and you take them to the hospital, you know, when it isn't COVID and you're cringing and you're beside yourself when they're getting stitches put in because, because you're feeling their pain and that's emotional empathy. Mm -hmm. That is affective or emotional empathy. So that's the, that's the second component. And then the third component is something called emotional concern. It's sometimes referred to as compassionate empathy, affective concern. It's the get up and go that motivates you to do something to help that person. Like if you're walking on, on a street and you see someone falling, go and help them to get up. Would that be considered compassionate empathy? Ab absolutely. And, okay. and, and, and it's because your brain has taken in the sight, the sounds, the colors, Everything that said distress must help. And you're hardwired to do that unless you're a psychopath. If you're a psychopath, you're, you're literally colorblind to those signals. You can't see them. You can't hear them. And it kind of gives you a different, you know, because we tend to think that, that psychopaths are evil, but they're not just evil. They, you know, they may be colorblind to emotion, to empathy. They can't detect it. They don't have the circuitry for that. And, uh, you know, they can still, they can learn it. They can learn the response of what, they, what empathy looks like, but they don't feel it at the same time. You know, affective concern or compassionate empathy, we all have it. We certainly want health professionals or, or first responders, police officers, firefighters. We want them to have it to run towards the fire, not away from the fire. Mm -hmm. And when they start to say things like, oh, what's the use? Nothing good happens when I run to the fire. I, I can't help. They're all <laughs> going to die anyway. I'm verbalizing the symptoms of burnout. Need to either take a time out or even consider doing another kind of job. Mm. 
I've read that the like for college students, the amount of empathy college kids have these days is much lower. You say that we all have empathy and, you know, kindness in all of us, but sometimes we're too self-centered or focus on us to help the others, like how it will look to others. How will I be judged if yep. I help them? Sometimes you won't, the classic thing would be, I guess, homeless people. You walk down the street, how many people just turn their head and try to look away or some people help like you see both. What's your take on that? So, so you're asking a really good question and it's complicated. There's a couple of things I want to say. First of all, um, the decision, you know, you stop, you see somebody who's homeless and, and, you know, sometimes you help and sometimes you don't. Why is that? You know, why is it that sometimes you help and sometimes you don't? The first thing I want to say is that our capacity to be kind to others operates both at a rudimentary level, at a very primitive part of our brains, and it also operates at a very well-evolved, well-developed part of our brains. So it's operating in the amygdala, which is part of the, the basic circuitry that we have, the anterior cingulate cortex, like parts of the brain where we automatically are, are able to put ourselves in two places at once, you know, observing somebody and being that person. Mm-hmm. And, and we think that that's the circuitry for empathy, but it, is, it doesn't come with a compulsion to be empathic. We judge. We're constantly judging. We're weighing whether the, you know, using our higher centers, our frontal lobes, our executive function, we're weighing the benefit of helping that person with, who is homeless and the cost. And the psychologist will tell us that, you know, the cost of helping that person might be at the expense of our own family. In fact, the cost of not helping that person might be at the expense of our own distress. We might feel distressed because we didn't help that person. And we're making these these calculations constantly. So for instance, the psychologists tell us that if you have a habitual route, you know, say you walk to work and back when it isn't COVID-19 and you are actually going to work. And along the way, you know, a couple of times, three times a week, you pass a homeless person and you like to give them something. Some people give them money. Some people give them a power bar, a coupon for, for, for some food, uh, a gift card. Instead, they want to make sure they spend it on, on, on something good. But you give something to them. One day, you are heading home and you're in a hurry because you, you promised you were going to do something at home with your children. You realize that you have nothing. You're empty-handed. You have nothing to give to that homeless person. Well, the psychologist will tell us that some of us will have no trouble walking by that person and others will actually walk a, a different route home so that they don't pass that person. And so they actually, they assuage their own moral distress by avoiding it, by avoiding the conflict. And, and so that tells you how complex it is. Mm-hmm. And what I like to teach people is, is cut yourself some slack. Don't blame yourself because you can't be kind to everybody <laughs> all the time. You can't. Because, you know, circumstances will make that impossible or, or you will be weighing your needs versus somebody else's needs, your family's needs versus this other person's needs. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of us get caught up in blaming ourselves for not being kind. Now, there is, you asked a, another question and, you know, you mentioned studies showing that college students are less empathic than they were, say, a generation ago. Mm-hmm. and a generation before that. And, you know, there have, been, there have been longitudinal studies that have looked at, that have compared generations in college, now going back about four generations. And you're right, they show a linear decrease 
in kindness. And that is in parallel with a big increase in anxiety mm. among college students. So there is an inverse relationship between anxiety and kindness. I've talked about how we're hardwired to be kind. We are also hardwired in our very primitive brains to distinguish between friend and enemy in nanoseconds. We look at the face of somebody. The psychologists have done experiments. Um, we look at their facial expressions, their tone of voice, the words that they use, and within moments, we decide, are you my friend or are you my enemy? We, we recognize, like, you know, have you ever had the experience of, of meeting a new member of your group and disliking them? You mm -hmm. just have an instant dislike to them. So what changes? What changes is that you get to know them. It takes weeks, maybe months. And then one day you have a situation where you say, oh, that could have been me and I could have been them and your friends. Mm. Maybe, it's a, maybe it's a shared experience. You know, both of you were, maybe it was a coworker and they got chewed out by the boss. You say, hmm, you know what? That could have been me. Uh, or you go to them and you say, you know, you took a hit for me. Mm -hmm. um because that was my fault and you become friends because you realize that you've got a common enemy now the boss <laughs> <laughs> and 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 you know and i'm not talking about the you know the enemy of my enemy as my friend although although that is that is definitely a valid expression but you know what does that mean you know what is the enemy of my enemy is my friend what does it mean it means we now have something in common mm. and you are will be kinder to somebody the instant you recognize that that person could be me and I could be them. In fact, mm -hmm. in that moment, I am them and they are me. They're mm -hmm. my brother. They're my sister. You know, I mentioned that we have these two drives, the drive to be kind and the drive to divide people into friend or foe. The problem is that when we are under, you know, when we're calm and centered and mindful, we are more likely to view people kindly, see that they could be me. When we're under stress, we tend to lapse into that primitive reflex of assuming that other people are our enemies. And I would suggest to you that American society, you know, that, that Donald Trump has thrived at it because he's taking advantage of these, this kind of primitive instinct to see people as enemies. Mm -hmm. You know, Republicans see Democrats as enemies. Democrats see Republicans as enemies. He has fostered this fear of immigrants, fear of refugees, fear of people who are disadvantaged. They're going to take away our country. They're going to take away our, you know, this rhetoric, which, which he, you know, he hasn't created the circumstances, but he's taking advantage of them. And what has that got to do with college students? Well, if college students are under greater degrees of anxiety than their parents and grandparents were, then they're going to be more likely to see the world as us and them and less likely to empathize. And that's one of the major reasons why we have less empathy in general. That's one factor. I would say a second factor, certainly if you look at, at Sherry Turkel's work, she's written some books. She believes that much of the anxiety that college students and high school students feel today can be traced back to the time when a majority of people, of young people had a smartphone. So the ubiquitous smartphone and social media and Facebook and, and Instagram and Reddit, you know, thinking that relationships are all about likes when they aren't. Mm -hmm. They're all about deep and meaningful conversations that you have one-on-one -on -one in person with people with, with whom you develop deep relationships over time. And a lot of young people are missing out on that. I would also say that a lot of them are missing out on reading books 
and and spending more time on you know on their on the internet where things are being flashed in front of them conflicts tensions are constantly being flashed in front of them and they they're not able to escape this kind of chronic anxiety in fact i'm feeling anxious as i'm even talking about this right now <laughs> okay so let's switch <laughs> I want to talk about certain empathic individuals from your book when you went to Brazil. And I love that part. So Shala, who's a mother in Brazil and had yep. a little son. And just quickly for the readers, you interviewed her and spent some time with her because she was one of those empathic and kind people that you wanted to meet. That she had met a homeless man she passed by every day with her son. She said something, and I want to read the, that part of the book. She said, we must find a way to understand people's lives whom we judge. You don't judge a person you just pass by and look at because you don't understand. And then something similar that that homeless man said was, how can you give value to a person you don't know if you don't know their life? And I love this because mm. it, I think that's a big part of why And in your book, like you said, we can't put ourselves in the other person's shoes. We won't feel any connect in any way. But what did you get from meeting her She was like, she was amazing. Like I had had phone conversations with her. I had, I'd spoke, I'd met her um, over Skype and we had had, you know, some amazing conversations, but to be in her presence, she walked with me. She took me to all the places in Sao Paulo where she had, where she had grown up, you know, where she had met her husband, the first house, the second house um, that she had been to and, you know, where she, and, and finally she took me to, to the park where she had met Raimundo, who was the homeless man. When she met him, he was disheveled. She didn't know if it was a man or a woman, and yet she was mesmerized by him. She saw the face of someone who could have been her and she could have been him. And, and she approached him very delicately. She had told me the story, but when she, she told me where it happened, Uh, where she found this man. She had just arrived in Sao Paulo with her husband, Ignacio, who she had married. That's another story, you know, how they mm -hmm. met. They met in the Zocalo in, in Mexico City. And, they, and she took one look at this guy and said, you and I are going to get married. Can you imagine <laughs> that? And they actually did get married. Like you have to understand that she is a, an intuitive person and you have to go with her intuition. And so you asked when I, when I met her, what was it like? I was mesmerized by her. She was an amazing person. And, you know, I wrote in the book that she's the kind of person that you meet, you know, in, in a city in Europe and six hours later, you've told your life story to her and you don't even know how that happened. Mm -hmm. When I was with her, I knew that I was in, in the presence of a beautiful, intuitive being whose soul was open. You know, she was not just open and friendly. She could see into your heart and you could see into her heart. And we were the two of us looking into each other's hearts. That's what I, what I had experienced. I never met Raimundo, his family, who reunited with him after homeless for 37 years. And because Shala had developed a Facebook page for this man, discovered he was a poet and posted some photographs of him and some of his uh, poems He became a local celebrity. People who had who walked past him, just as you had asked me before, were suddenly wanting to meet him. They they rec they realized that they knew him, 
and they had conversations with him. It was all wonderful. And then his brother contacted Shala and said, I think I know, I think this is my brother. And he was right. And they reunited. But once the family reunited with him, they kind of put a cordon around him. And he has not been seen or heard like Shala has got to visit him once. She tried to publish his poems. She's been unable to do so. You know, many, many people stop to help a homeless person. Many people, they'll contribute money, they'll give somebody a dollar. I have never met anybody who has cultivated a friendship with a homeless person and has said, this is my soulmate. And it's, it's a relationship like no other. At that time, she has cultivated relationships with other homeless men and women. She is the most empathic person I've ever met. She's the most intuitively, she's gifted in empathy. And so what you read in the book Mm -hmm. was she has a way of verbalizing that uncanny ability to put herself in the shoes of another person. And, and, you know, Christian, when I, when I wrote the book and I wanted to meet these kind people, I wanted to not only document their acts of kindness, but ask deep questions about why they were so kind. Mm-hmm. You know, what made them that way? Was it nature or was it nurture? In her case, it's both. She was born with off-the-charts empathy. If you, if you were to do an MRI of the empathy centers of her brain, they would light up like a Roman candle. They would be <laughs> amazing. But she also came from a background where her parents argued constantly. They divorced when she was 12. And she learned from bitter experience to withdraw from her parents' conflict and enter kind of her own private world where she was feeling bliss and felt peace. The amazing thing about her story is that when her, her son Tata was old enough, barely out of, being his to- out of being a toddler, walking on his own, he found his own homeless man and cultivated an identical relationship with this man that Shala had cultivated with Chaimundo. And it was astonishing, but it was an astonishing display of nature. He had to have inherited her uncanny ability uh, for empathy because he was born after her relationship with Raimundo had reached its climax. And he's met Raimundo, but as a young child, he would not remember Raimundo because, because you know, young children often, you know, their first memory is as a mm-hmm. four-year-old or a three-year-old. And, and so, so really an astonishing story. And I'm not surprised that, that you like that story. It kind of relates to one of my my biggest takeaways from your book was when you wrote, some of us are born extraordinarily kind, but most get there only after experiencing pain and then learning from it. Which is true when you actually think about it. Like, let's say for mothers, I only became much more empathic and connected to what another mother might be feeling when I became a mother. You know, before it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Until you You know what it's like. (laughs) Until you've lived it, you can, you know if you have a child with a disability and you see another mother and they have a child with a disability, you connect more with that you're more empathic than someone who might maybe not understand. So I guess it's a, about experiencing it. Yes. Like if I can go back to that original family uh, that, that accused me of unkindness, I can say that while I appreciated meeting with them, I did not understand what they were going through until many years later when I went through the same thing with my own parents. Mm. 
And so there is no substitute for lived experience as, as a generator of empathy. But you have to leave yourself open to those experiences. You have to somehow come through that experience on the other side. And some people become bitter from their experiences and others become kinder. You know, I met Ted Fontaine, is a survivor of two residential schools, and he was brutalized. He has horrible stories to tell. And he was, you know, mired in self-despair, self-loathing. He was a substance user, and he was headed towards suicide. And he reached a point when he finally said, I can go down this road, or I can use my pain to empathize with other people. He taught me that if you can have that much pain in your life and come out the other side and be empathic to others, then there's hope for all of us. Mm -hmm. I want to talk briefly about the virtual reality empathy machine. We're hearing more and more about VR. I, like my partner has a business with that. So I know it's becoming a big thing. But what was amazing about it is how, let's say you gave the example of the United Nations are using VR films to help people empathize with refugees that are immigrating to North America. And, yep. and I thought this was amazing because I've heard people comment about they're coming and taking over our jobs and why are they all coming? You know, all those comments. And I thought, wow, that's because we can't understand where they come from, what they've been going through. So talk about how this was because you actually tried it right yes i did yeah mm -hmm. so you're talking about the film clouds over sidra mm -hmm. and 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 this was this was the first un sponsored vr film it's a virtual reality film and don the the oculus rift glasses or the cheaper version which is basically a samsung galaxy which allows you to appreciate the the vr experience and basically you are transported into um a refugee camp for syrian refugees in jordan And I was there and I, you know, I was in that place. I spent a day in Sidra's shoes. You know, I went to the school where she, you know, in a tent where she went to school, you know, where she, uh, played the soccer field where she played soccer. I was in the tent at the end of the day, you know, where her mom made a home cooked meal. And there was a moment in that experience in which she talked about, you know, the spices. Her mom doesn't have the same spices she has at home. And I got a lump in my throat. I started to remember my mom's, you know, the comfort foods my mom made for me. And, and there I was able to empathize with Sidra on an elemental level. Mm. And it was an amazing experience. And, and certainly that taught me the power of virtual reality to promote empathy, to foster at least empathy for a moment. And so that you reach into your pocket and you want to contribute. That was the purpose of the, of the film. And it certainly was spectacularly effective. Does it foster permanent empathy? I have my doubts. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I don't always exhibit it. Sometimes, you know, when I'm on my worst behavior, when I'm under stress, when I'm tired, when I'm, you know, feel, when I'm defensive, when I'm anxious, all of those factors get in the way of my own empathy. But, but you know, on my best days, then I can appreciate that they could be me and I could be them. One thing I enjoyed is another person you interviewed was your wife, whom you see is one of those, the most empathic person you know. And she said that most of us, it's a constant battle of our good side and not our good side, that most people have to work at being empathic. So since this was a journey for you, 
what are you doing these days to maybe remind you uh, to be kind or more empathic during those situations where you feel more stress? What I do under those circumstances, first of all, you mentioned my partner, Tamara. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm more open to her observations. And she's very good at noticing, you know, when my emotional state has changed and that I may be less open and kind and caring. And, and I notice it in her. You know, certainly with our children, with our son in particular, each of us, you know, have, have learned how to play, you know, they call it good cop, bad cop, which mm-hmm. is a bit, a bit manipulative. Um, <laughs> one of us may have permission to be angry with our son in the, in the moment, but the other one tends to be more reflective. I think I've, I've done a pretty good job of being less angry and punitive and more likely to understand, more interested in understanding, you know, what motivates him to behave a certain way under, you know, in, in certain circumstances. You know, our son has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And, uh, you know, my partner Tamara and I adopted our two children. And so we knew this was a risk. We adopted mm-hmm. our children from Russia. Russia mm-hmm. has a high prevalence of alcohol use disorder. And, and mm-hmm. so I would say, I would say it's not easy. But, but the things that I do to remind myself, um, I meditate, I run, I, I try to, to get outside the anxieties that I feel. I feel, I, I allow myself to feel what I feel. I verbalize it a lot. To They're yourself? Pre- yeah, to myself. Yeah, to myself. Okay. Oh, absolutely. I do. Yeah. Um, you know, for instance, that time with that family in the emergency department, I was being defensive. Mm-hmm. I was defensive because I believed that somehow... Every time I was criticized for either being unkind or making a mistake, it was making a statement about me. And it, and it took me a long time to, to accept that it wasn't. It's a statement about my behavior, but not, about, and not a statement about me. And I found that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm talking about shame. I'm talking about the kind of shame that some people, not everybody, but some people feel. The thing about shame, you know, it, you tend to want to keep it a secret because the discovery of your behavior reinforces the shameful experience. So Mm -hmm. it's better if people don't find out that you make mistakes or that you're unkind. And so one way of deflecting that is to be defensive. And, you know, when somebody's about to to catch you on a mistake, because you know it's going to be terribly embarrassing. You know, I reached the point in my life when I had to say that, you know, like Ted Fontaine, that if I get caught up in my own mistakes like that without learning from them, it's good. They're going to destroy me. So they can either destroy me or I can overcome them and, and become, you know, a better person as a result. And, and you know, Brene Brown, she writes, she's written many wonderful books about shame mm-hmm. and empathy and, and shame blocks empathy. And that's, that's the reason why I'm talking about this. That was my singular empathy problem issue. What I learned from Brene Brown and others, in fact, I learned it before Brene Brown, is that if you, if you talk about the things you're ashamed of, you deprive them of the power to enslave you by, by your wanting to keep them a secret. At some point, you, you, you have to just say, I'm afraid of this, but, and here's how I'm going to manage that fear. I discovered that talking about my mistakes, I've done a TED Talk about that, talking about my, you know, giving, giving speeches about my acts of unkindness and what I learned from them has helped make me a better person mm-hmm. by simply allowing me to deal with that shame so that my natural tendency to be kind and empathic comes to the surface. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's <laughs> so good. How old are your kids? Uh, my daughter is uh, will be 22. She's 21 right now. She'll be 22 in a couple of months. And my son just turned 18. 
Are you telling them specific things about how to be kind now that you know all of this from researching and visiting exceptionally kind people? Yeah, I tell them from time to time. I've told them stories about the book. You know, I, I, I think that it's probably more fruitful for them to reflect on their own experiences than to try to learn from mine because experience, your personal experience is the best teacher. I'm curious to know about your work world as an ER physician, and also this will be helpful for the mothers that are in similar field in healthcare. Who would you say are the kindest people you meet in hospitals? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, this may surprise you, but often the kindest people you meet are the people who don't work in the healthcare fields in the hospital. The people who are at the second cup, you know, at the at the coffee shop people who, who clean the rooms, who clean the floors, and they're often the ones who have the most human relations with patients and staff. And uh, that may surprise you, but it doesn't surprise me because I believe that many healthcare professionals become healthcare professionals because they have an inferiority complex or they have, they're self-conscious, they are uh, worried that they aren't kind. And so I think unconsciously they choose, I can't prove this, but I, I, I believe as I did, <laughs> that they choose the health professions because they're seen widely in society as doing good and being kind. Uh, mm -hmm. When they become health professionals, I think many of them discover that there's this other side of being a health professional, shame, proneness, perfectionism, the fear of being caught making a mistake, you know, sometimes for, because it can harm patients, but, you know, nobody's perfect. And yet we aspire to be perfect. And, and, you know, some people think that that's a virtue. And I don't think it's a virtue at all. I, I think we're chasing a ghost. We're chasing something we can't, we can't achieve. And I think it would be better if we were human and recognized our own mistakes and recognized that when we're tired, we make mistakes or that, you know, in a complicated system, it's impossible to be completely error-free. But I think a lot of health professionals continue to be burdened by that. They're uptight about being caught out making a mistake or, or even a faux pas in conversation. You know, they, they tend to adopt the most stringent politically correct language. And, you know, these are just my personal observations. And I mm -hmm. think a lot of this is, is, is saying we're not human. We're, you know, we're, we're superhuman. You know, for many of us on a functional level, perfectionism works in that it makes us the most perfect and the least, the least error prone humans on the planet. And I had to go through that to, uh, to realize I'm a good person and I'm human. Sometimes I make mistakes, but I, I always learn from them and mm -hmm. I mitigate them. And, and, and I have to tell you, Christian, that if you look in the hospitals these days, not just with COVID, but between, between pandemics, mm -hmm. we are tired, irritable, defensive hypersensitive mm -hmm. to criticism. And it's, it, you know, it's astonishing to some of us in the health professions that we would ever be criticized for anything because look how we've sacrificed. We're martyrs. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying that with a dripping with contempt because I don't think, I don't think any human should be a martyr and be proud of it. You know, self-motivated martyr. I, 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 think, I think you should, you should spend time with your family. You should recharge your batteries. You should learn to say no. You shouldn't say yes to every committee. You shouldn't say yes to every job. You know, one more thing, suck it up, suck it up, suck it up until you crash. Because I think those are the people who will snap at patients yeah. when, they need, when they need compassion the most. And what they don't understand is that as they drive home, having snapped at a patient, mm -hmm. they stay defensively and, they, on the, and on their way home, they don't realize how much it's eating them inside that they snapped at their patient. 
And, you know, one of the things I, I, I tell, you know, I tell my colleagues, because I give a lot of speeches on, on empathy in healthcare, is whatever you're feeling, if you have to deliver bad news to a patient, you have to center yourself first. You can't go in there when you're tired and irritable and anxious and terrified that they're going to blame you for it. You have to find a way to put those feelings to the side, meditate, walk, because if you don't, then you're not going to be able to empathize with that person, which is to tell them the bad news as plainly as you can, and then let them feel what they feel because they have the right to feel what they feel and without you taking the blame for it. Mm -hmm. You say the term empathy off switch. Oh, the empathy. Yeah. Now, surgeons in the operating room have an empathy off switch. They are so focused on the job, which is technically so exacting that they need to focus all of their attention on the job. It's a multi-stage process. And, and it has been hypothesized that, uh, that surgeons have an empathy off switch. That doesn't mean they're mean people. It just means that they have an ability to, to pay no attention to the pain and suffering that their patients might be feeling or the damage that they're trying to repair. You know, I, I would argue if they could feel their patient's pain, their postoperative pain following a knee replacement surgery, they'd probably quit surgery that day. Mm-hmm. So we don't want them to feel their patient's pain. So to sum it all up, your book, The Power of Kindness, it was about finding empathy in the everyday life. What does it take for us to be kind every day? In a sentence, yeah. um, to, be, to be kind to others, you need to be kind to yourself. It's not either or. It's not a zero-sum game. So to be, empathize with others, you have to empathize with yourself. Um, to take care of others, you need to take care of yourself first. Um, you know, that sign or the, you know, on when you're, when we get to fly that an oxygen mask will drop, place the, the mask over your nose and mouth and breathe first and take care of yourself first before you attend to others, including your children. (laughs) So, so you, so in a sentence, if you want to be kind and empathic to others, you must be kind and empathic to yourself first. And if you do that, then your natural tendency to be kind and empathic will come to the surface. Love that. So where can listeners learn more about you? Just give us all the details. Um, yep. So I have a Twitter feed. It's at NightShiftMD, all one word, NightShiftMD. Find out all about my two shows, White Coat Black Art, and our new podcast, The Dose, at cbc.ca slash whitecoat, one word. And I have my own website, drbriangoldman.com. Brian, uh, Brian was an I. Perfect. And I'll end with a question I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. So we all know that being a parent is a roller coaster of emotions and experiences. Keeping motherhood inspired, what one thing have you found kept you inspired and energized throughout your parenting journey? Every once in a while, the capacity of my son in particular to surprise me with his creativity by getting something that I thought he never, he never got, by learning a lesson that I thought he never learned. That's what inspires me. And it's often unexpected, but when it happens, it's like a bolt of lightning. Thank you for listening to another episode of Citrus Love, Keeping Motherhood Inspired podcast. If you think someone would enjoy to listen to this episode, please share it with them. You can share the link wherever you're listening or go to our website at www.citruslove.com episode and the number where you will find the episode as well as all the information about the guests or the specific episode. 
The best way to get our podcast ranked is by leaving me a review wherever you're listening. Two, three, four, five, six stars. Whatever you feel reflect podcast, this will not only let me know what needs to be improved as well as what you particularly love. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get the next episode. And thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye, guys. Bye.